Hello, everyone. Uh, this is John Cam, Professor of Clinical Cardiology at St. George's University in London, UK. And with me today is Professor Keith Fox from Edinburgh. We have both just been involved in the Bayer Symposium at the European Heart Rhythm Association Annual Congress in Copenhagen. The symposium dealt with anticoagulation management in older patients with atrial fibrillation, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. We enjoyed the symposium, but thought that it might be well worth discussing a little further the particular problem of how to deal with interventions in patients who have atrial fibrillation and are anticoagulated with a non-vitamin K anticoagulant. So let's start. Keith, why do patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing PCI need such close attention when choosing an antithrombotic regimen? Thanks, John. And um, so the, the issue is the traveling companions of atrial fibrillation are vascular disease and coronary artery disease and some of their complications. So first of all, the clinician has to be aware of all of those issues. And specifically here, um, a significant proportion, maybe up to a quarter of the patients with atrial fibrillation will at some time require an interventional procedure, usually for angina, but sometimes for an acute coronary syndrome. So th that is number one. But one of the reasons why um, clinicians need to be especially careful is there's two things at play. On the one hand, we need to prevent uh, stroke, which is the underlying reason for the anticoagulation. And on the other hand, we need to minimize bleeding. But within this, with an interventional procedure, we have risks of procedural thrombosis and stent thrombosis. So the difficult balance that there was before the trials were done was the issue of how much antithrombotic how much anticoagulant, and uh, the trials have been done and the guidelines have been updated. Keith, well, what about the antithrombotic treatment for the coronary disease? Is that useful for preventing stroke? Uh, no. Uh, in the past, it was used, and I'm sad to say that internationally, uh, agents like aspirin and clopidogrel are still used but they are vastly inferior to appropriate anticoagulation. And the reverse is true that uh, anticoagulation, for example, with a NOAC is not valuable in patients who are having interventions for coronary disease. Well, anticoagulation with a NOAC alone, alone without some form of antithrombotic is, is not recommended in that setting. And the combination then, which seems to be necessary, will increase bleeding risk. The combination will, and hence for each of the uh, NOACs, the, um, there's been a combination of a dose of the NOAC and a dose of antithrombotic to go with it. Um, and in the case of rivaroxaban, um, the, the dose was three quarters of the dose. 15 milligrams rather than the full 20 milligrams combined with clopidogrel. So I believe that each of the NOACs have, have been studied in trials of this sort in combination with uh, antiplatelet therapy. What's the sort of uh, outcome 
of all of these trials. Can you synthesize it? Yes, indeed. And in fact, um, coming out shortly will be a composite analysis, individual patient analysis of all of the trials. And it's been uh, very insightful because what it says is, first of all, the trials with the NOACs very substantially reduce bleeding risks compared to the reference arm with warfarin and the background antithrombotic used in, in both sides. So uh, that's number one. Number two, um, although the individual trials were not sufficiently powered to be certain of the efficacy against uh, stroke and other um, cardiovascular interventions, the composite suggests they are at least as effective. Uh, so I think this is very reassuring. And the other take-home message is triple therapy for as short as possible. So we, we now have uh, an action plan, so to speak, uh, mm -hmm. to put into practice. And I know that there have been recently quite a few guidelines written on how we should actually approach a patient with atrial fibrillation who has to, for example, undergo a PCI. And I know it's slightly different for patients who have an elective PCI and, and others who have uh, an urgent non-elective PCI for acute coronary syndrome, for example. So how do we approach the patient who's having an elective PCI? Yes, it's a very good point, John. So um, for an emergency PCI for acute infarction or ACS, the priority is getting that coronary vessel open. So this is an emergency procedure that is done on top of the background therapy, recognizing that there might be some bleeding risk, but getting that vessel open is the top priority. What we're discussing primarily today are the elective procedures. And in the elective procedures, we are talking about uh, patients that predominantly are on a background therapy of a stable NOAC. And then they're going to have uh, the elective procedure in combination with um, an antithrombotic for the procedure. And uh, the guidelines uh, quite commonly recommend um, aspirin and clopidogrel for up to a week in such patients, and then reverting to dual therapy, which is just the NOAC, and the antiplatelet. Keith, can I take you back just a little bit and, and ask you what to do when the patient is actually coming for the angiogram? Let's say they have atrial fibrillation. They are taking a NOAC. What about the procedure itself? Do they keep taking the NOAC or do they stop? So for an elective procedure, what we recommend is stopping on the morning of the procedure. In other words, withholding the dose on the morning of the procedure. And then they go ahead with the procedure in the non normal way. Yes. Uh, and have the same anticoagulant uh, process during the procedure? Yeah, they, they would have um, the antithrombotic regimen that is normally recommended with one caveat. The combination of the more potent antiplatelets like prasugrel and ticagrelor, there is evidence that they have increased bleeding risks. So the advice is to use clopidogrel in this setting. 
and then um, restart the therapy afterwards. But what, one other caveat is once one comes to the end of the need for dual antithrombotic, the long-term th therapy is, is NOAC alone. Yeah, that's a very important point because there's always this debate between the EP or arrhythmia doctor on the one hand and the, the coronary interventionalist on the other hand. And the coronary interventionist wants the uh, antiplatelet therapy, often dual antiplatelet therapy, to continue for forever almost. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the uh, EP doctor is very concerned that uh, the patient be anticoagulated and the two together, of course, are going to cause a very high bleeding risk. So uh, I've understood from you that uh, the patient post-procedure will have triple therapy for a short time, is that right? In the current guidelines, including the European guidelines, th that is recommended for up to a week. However, um, increasingly there is evidence uh, arising that dual therapy alone, in other words, the antiplatelet clopidogrel plus the NOAC, and that could be rivaroxaban, it could be apixaban, the bigger trans. And how long then is the dual therapy following the procedure in, in these elective cases? Right. So um, this is not something that we can just say is one standard length for everybody. Because if during the procedure, the, um, in, the intervention, the stent placement is complex and the vascular disease is complex, then the interventionists, um, he or she would suggest that uh, a longer term, uh, a longer time is needed, maybe three months, maybe six months of dual antiplatelet therapy to minimize the risks of stent thrombosis, provided that there's no elevated risks of bleeding. And what we're talking about is a patient who's had a particularly a serious bleed or any major bleed in the past. So these, these patients are not going to be taking double therapy for as long as in the past. They used to at least take it for a minimum of one year, but yeah. you're suggesting that now this can be shortened. But during the period at least, they're going to be at high bleeding risk. So do you do anything to try and minimize that? Yes. Um, number one is um, identification at the start of those that are at higher bleeding risks. And number two is using a, an agent that inhibits um, acid, um, to, uh, like, like, for example, pentoprazole to cover um, a PPI. The, a PPI. So I think that that's very important. But then you say, after the period of dual therapy, that is a, a NOAC plus usually clopidogrel, you would stop the clopidogrel and use only uh, monotherapy with an anticoagulant. Is there any evidence that that's the appropriate thing to do? Yes. Um, the largest trial was done in Japan and they specifically extended to a year and studied in a very robust randomized way. Um, in that case, they were using rivaroxaban, uh, the combination of rivaroxaban and the antiplatelet versus the rivaroxaban alone, and alone reduced bleeding and had no increased risk of 
uh, cardiovascular events. Now, is this, uh, let's say, this rule, is this rule going to apply to everybody or are there some patients who do need to continue with antiplatelet therapy? Well, that's why we need clinicians, not algorithms, because as you and I know, uh, that patients are so individually variable. And if you've got a patient or if we've got a patient with very complex coronary anatomy and low bleeding risks, and they've got to six months or a year with no bleeding complications, then the responsible clinician, he or she may decide, actually, because of the coronary risks in this patient, I want them continued, but watched carefully. Well, I think that that's very good advice, Keith. I'm, I'm sure that this is an evolving situation because it's changed dramatically over the last mm -hmm. several years mm -hmm. from uh, triple therapy for long periods following such an intervention has now come down to triple therapy for a day or two, followed by dual therapy for three to six months mm -hmm. in elective procedures, and then yeah. monotherapy with the anticoagulant. That's a big change, and obviously it's, it's all designed to try and reduce the bleeding risk of having so many antithrombotic therapies given to the patient at the same time. Absolutely. I think you've summarized it really well. Well, we, I think we also need to talk about another intervention which is common in patients with atrial fibrillation, and that is, of course, increasingly catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation, which means that you have to insert uh, a catheter into the left atrium, usually via transeptal route, and either using cryotherapy or a radio frequency or increasingly other forms of energy, you want to try and isolate the source of the atrial fibrillation, usually by doing pulmonary vein isolation. These patients are, of course, usually taking an anticoagulant. So is there a particular risk in keeping them on the anticoagulant, or should we be taking them off the anticoagulant to do the procedure? How should the, that Happened. Yeah, the issue is, as, as, as we know, that these people are at ongoing risk of stroke events over the course of a year, but the individual risk per day is relatively modest. And most of the uh, ablation experts would rather withhold the NOAC for the duration of the procedure before reinitiating. Now, initially it was thought, well, they're fixed, they're cured. <laughs> but as you and I know, they aren't necessarily cured because there's a combination of either symptomatic or asymptomatic paroxysms of atrial fibrillation in a proportion of patients. So if the underlying CHADS to VASC risk is sufficiently high, then in my view, they need to continue on anticoagulation because they are at risk of reverting. But the caveat that I, I make is that the average age of an ablation is about 55. So many of these people um, don't have extensive coronary disease and are Chad's VASC risks low that would be below those normally used for stroke prevention. 
Yes, I completely agree with you, Keith. I think there are two main sort of controversial areas here now. As you know, we've had uh, several trials that have looked at uh, using NOx on a so-called uninterrupted fashion mm-hmm. and comparing that with the standard method using warfarin. And uh, the trials have generally demonstrated that there are less events if you use the NOAC compared with the vitamin K antagonist. But having said that, the question is whether you should keep the NOAC going during the procedure or stop it uh, very briefly, perhaps on the morning of the procedure, or stop it for a longer period of time. And we've had the one trial that has looked specifically at those particular areas, and, and there doesn't seem to be too much difference between what you do. But on the other hand, uh, the trials uh, of uninterrupted therapy with each of the NOACs have been very convincing. And therefore, most guidelines now say keep the NOAC going, but Physicians in the field are often hesitant about that. So they often decide, well, we'll stop it on the morning of the procedure. Now, I I take a sort of intermediate view here because I think with a once-daily therapy, for example, you could make sure that the patient is taking the therapy in the evening and then you could do the procedure, let's say, the next afternoon. So you're at a trough level with the anticoagulant, it's relatively safe time to do the procedure. And then you can restart. You haven't missed a dose at all. It's a little more difficult if it's twice a day therapy because you're never going to quite reach the the same kind of trough level that you would with a once daily therapy. And people often just skip one dose of a twice daily NOAC in order to do that. Then the other controversy is you rightly bring up is uh, restarting the anticoagulant. Prior to the ablation, you have to make sure that the patient's anticoagulated for three weeks. I believe the guidelines say then you either stop it minimally or you continue it during the procedure. And then afterwards, you have to continue for two months. At that point, you have to think, should we continue it at all? And I must say, there are no good data yet, except from observational studies, to suggest exactly how we should handle that. But there are trials ongoing at present that will give us the answer. Right now, I just look at the CHADS VASC risk factors, and if they have a score that needs means that they should be anticoagulated, I re-anticoagulate them. Others take the view they can use this pill-in-the-pocket anticoagulation approach, but I'm not a fan of that at the moment. Uh, So I think that uh, there are several outstanding controversies here that we haven't really settled. John, if I I can just um, interrupt you for a moment. You're an expert in this field, and what proportion of the strokes are coming from the left atrium? Well, I think the the vast majority are coming from thrombus in the left atrium. That's why many people will do a TOE prior Mm -hmm. to an inflation procedure, or one of the reasons. 
in order to look to see if there isn't a thrombus in the left atrial appendage. Of course, the procedure itself can dislodge debris and uh, coagulation, uh, coagulum, and that can end up in sort of minor uh, strokes. And that's been well documented, particularly with some forms of energy used in an ablation procedure. Yeah. But that's not the, the major problem. The major right. problem is the, is the risk from the AF itself. But, but one of the things I wanted to raise is in patients with vascular disease of the kind that we studied in sinus rhythm in the COMPASS trial, up to a quarter of them had unsuspected microembolic strokes previously from the MRIs. So that suggests to me that, yes, the left atrium is the principal source, but there are vascular sources as well. Yes, of course, a patient with atrial fibrillation is not protected from the other mm. mechanisms of stroke. It's just that since the stroke rate has increased three or four times in atrial fibrillation, it is predominantly thrombosis sure. in the left atrium that accounts for the increased risk. Well, I think Keith, time is up. So thank you very much for an interesting discussion on how to handle interventions such as PCI or catheter ablation in patients anticoagulated for atrial fibrillation. Achieving the right balance between the risk of bleeding and thrombosis is important and often difficult, but made much easier by the availability of non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants. And thanks to all of you who've listened to our conversation. I hope that you also enjoyed it. If you'd like to view the whole of the Bayer-sponsored ERA Symposium, please tune in to the European Heart Rhythm Association Congress website for the next week or so, and after that to ESC 365. Once again, thank you. And John, thank you. It's been a really interesting discussion, and I hope the next time we discuss some of these ongoing controversies might be resolved. Indeed, we can only hope. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is funded by Bayer AG and the approval code is M-A-M-R-I-V-A-L-L-117211.